Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. It's a We Have Ways Thursday special, and normally it's just a straight line between two points. Today we form a triangle, as we are joined by <laughs> Guy Walters, um, uh, historian, journalist, and uh, Nazi hunter. Is that right, Guy? Oh, How yes, I think we can call my uh, Nazi hunter. Why not? Yeah, well, we, we'll talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, thanks for joining us on the podcast. I'm, I'm sure you love the show. Um, uh, it's <laughs> bad. <laughs> Huge fan. Excellent. Um uh, 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 and you and James are local, aren't you? You're you're up the road from each other, is that right? I actually measured it the other day. We live 0.71 miles away. So really? that's really very close indeed. That, I mean, I think that's probably, what, a kilometre? So, uh, yep. yes, no, and it's actually thanks to James that I live where I live because he told me that I shouldn't be living where I used to live and I should be living where he lives. And it's James's right. idea to get all his friends living in his village. So, where, where did you used to live? We used to live about 20 miles north. So thanks, to, right. thanks to Jim, we moved house 20 miles at vast expense. So the thing is, he used to, he used to, he used to live next to Rod Little and, and it all got right. a bit fruity. Um, and I said, look, there's this house coming up for sale um, um, and it hasn't come on the market yet. Why don't you just sort of get in there quick and <laughs> blow me down? It's exactly what he did. And he moved and it's been great. Oh, fantastic. So, you know, it's oh, really excellent. nice having a, having, a, having a mate just down the road. I'm all for it personally. <laughs> but um, but um, Guy, you you have written this absolutely amazing book called Hunting Evil a few years ago, uh, and I remember when I read it, uh, and I remember going for sort of walks with you and talking about it as you were researching and stuff, and I remember reading it and, and just thinking, God, this is absolutely, it's just devastating stuff because, I mean, you you made the point that it 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 shouldn't really be called Hunting Evil; it should be called Not Hunting Evil because of the sort of general lack of 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 sort of tracking down these Nazis uh, and, and one of the most biggest revelations is just how crap Simon Wiesenthal was and what a fantasist he was I, I just found the whole thing absolutely mesmerizing and actually we've just had we Alan and I've just been talking on today's day show about um Joachim Piper and someone's going how on earth did this terrible Nazi escape the gallows and you kind of think god you really should just read Guy's book and that'll explain it all yeah, yeah. <clears throat> everybody well, should so- read it yeah <laughs> so how did he how did they escape the gallows these people guy that's the that's the that's the listener's question okay and well how they escaped it was the fact that actually no one really gave a toss after about 1948-1949 you've got to remember as you two know better than almost anybody else in the world that after six long years of war world war no one really wants to spend their time you know constantly uh, you know in uniform tracking down nazis um you know yeah. keeping all the bad blood going people just want to get on with their lives they don't want to think about conflict anymore they don't want to think about us versus germany um there really wasn't a mood and you've also got to work out somewhere in my office i have uh, the nascent united nations uh, war criminals list and it's about five inches thick now you've got to work out if there are 50 people on each page you've got in the region of about a hundred thousand manhunts there um, and, you know, uh, listeners will probably remember. Do you remember the, 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 the manhunt for Raoul Moat when Gaza brought along his chicken? And, and yes. yeah, imagine 100,000 of them. 
Okay, probably without Gaza, I would suggest. But the, <laughs> the, the point being is it's the amount of resources that you've got to chuck at hunting down what one war crimes investigator described as the sheer volume of criminality uh, was almost... It was the, the logistics required were impossible. And also... The people who have been dragooned into the war crimes units uh, weren't, shall we say, the brightest of the bunch. Um, and so if you were a <laughs> if you were a young, young officer, um, you didn't want to join the war crimes unit. That was seen as a backwater. Um, and so you had, frankly, some you know, pretty average chaps joining this unit um, who had no necessarily no knowledge of German, um, had no knowledge of detective work, uh, had no knowledge of forensics. And, and for this, you're going to bring people to trial you know, for their lives, you know, with, with people investigating without any experience. So that's this one elemental problem. And I, I remember talking to a man called Lieutenant Colonel Nielsen, who lives um, in Wiltshire, like me and James, or used to, he's probably just died. And he was head of the war crimes unit as a half colonel. And I said, did you get the UN war crimes list? And he said, it's the first I've heard of it. Right. That, what? that was 60. <laughs> <laughs> it was there I was in his in his study 70 years later telling him about a list he never bloody received. Um, That's incredible. So, so so cock up is the big thing. That's the first reason. Cock up. Well, lack of will. Lack, lack, of, lack will. of will. And I then remember cock up. Yeah, cock up. And I think that people just wanted to get on with their lives. And I think that people realised that actually rebuilding Germany was going to be better for everybody in the long run than conducting a hundred thousand manhunts across Germany. Well, and, and more important with with the because you're also the timing you're talking about is the, the emergence of the Cold War as the as the new geopolitical situation. Because there is a sort of two year window, isn't there, where yeah. we're fr everyone's friends and friends with the Soviets. Stalin isn't cranking up the pressure. The Americans aren't responding by cranking up pressure as well. And, and, and then and, you have the air, and then you have the Berlin airlift. And then the Berlin airlift and everything. Exactly. Everything changes. You've got um, a new. You've got a new. You've you've got a new enemy on your hands. Some of these Germans are actually going to be quite useful for dealing with your new enemy. Um, so you know they know about the Russians. They know about the Soviets. They they fought there for years. They they know where. Uh, you know, literally where the bodies are buried. They know who yeah. to use. And there is this sort of sense that. Um, you know, technologically, you know, you're driving around Germany in cars that go 40 miles an hour. Um, you know, you've got to cover vast distances. It, it, it's really not going to it's really not going really to happen. And there is this sort of complete lack of lack of will by the end of it. And even Churchill yeah. was saying this idea of uh, retributive justice is very problematic because it can only end up shining the spotlight on whatever crimes that we may have committed. Um, yes. and, 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 and even Church, I think, was saying that, and, and you two may be able to correct me on that. He either said it immediately after the war or even towards the end of the war. Um, and, and he expressed grave misgivings. And also, I think there was awareness that people realised that bad things happened in war. And perhaps you close the door, you get on with it and you let it alone. So, so to flip the question, then, um, how did Joachim Piper avoid the hangman? Why did any of them bother leaving the country? Well, first of all, about Joachim Piper. Has anyone, did anyone point out how much he looks like David Beckham? <laughs> it, it's, I, I, I write in Hunting Evil um, how uh, it's no accident uh. that the good-looking, so, somewhat homoerotic-looking Joachim Piper has become the poster boy for neo-Nazis today. Oh, of course, they of course. They, they love him because Joachim Piper's hot to look at. And, yeah. uh, and, and, and he sort of looks the model of it. Jochen Piper was killed in the end, as you know, by 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 people in France. Yeah, 1976. Murdered. Yeah. What's really interesting about Malmody, which I think is sort of eighty-four or something like that, Americans are killed, which is almost exactly the same number of Italians and Germans that were slaughtered by Americans in the Biscari massacre in in July nineteen forty-three. 
Right. Okay. And and I think, uh, I think and one of uh, and two of the perpetrators there. One of them got completely exonerated and was was sent back to a frontline unit and was probably killed in Italy. Uh, and the other one was given a life sentence, which was then commuted, and he went back to the front and was honourably discharged from the army in 1945. And I think the reason why people like Piper get away with it is is also because there isn't a public demand for um, this sort of form of justice. And and you only have to look at the uh, letters pages in newspapers like the Times, in which people are getting very worried that endless Germans in about 46, 47 are being hanged for their part in the war. And I think there was a feeling, rightly or wrongly, that some of these people didn't have a choice to commit the crimes they committed. Now, I, I don't buy into that. and I think that's a, a massively separate issue. But certainly yeah. there was an opinion at the time, mm. you know, let's not go around doing this. And I felt that and I think there was a, a broad sympathy that if a sort of kind of bomber pilot had parachuted out over your town, having just bombed your house and killed your children, you might want to get it in with your pitchfork. And indeed, that is the majority of crimes. If you look at the UN war crimes lists are downed RAF pilots and US Air Force pilots uh, literally being shot by the local burgermeister, you know, uh, instantly because right. they've, they've just bombed the town. And of course, the, the Germans have been brutalised by bombing. Um, but but it also comes from the top as well. It comes from the top as well because um, you you made your point about about Churchill Walt, but but also um, you know Kesselring is is given a uh, initially given a, a death sentence, um, and you know in terms of kind of sort of you know war criminality, it's probably justified. You know he was pretty bad in Italy, um, and yet it is Alexander is one of the people that you know Phil Marshall Alexander comes in and goes goes no this shouldn't happen, you know and he's he's kind of the along with Monty, who's kind of one of the most famous commanders that Britain has. And if he's saying it, it's kind of setting a tone. No, I think you're right. And I think the other thing is that the, the whole um, knowledge and, and the idea uh, of the Holocaust uh, simply wasn't in the public mind. People were aware yes, of that, the camps. That, that was, that's the thing. That's the other thing, isn't it? Is that, is that the scale, actually, of the, of the Holocaust and of the camp system, because, it, because essentially it was unbelievable, um, uh, uh, and this is, of course, where the, where the denier people get get their traction, isn't it? Because it essentially was unbelievable. The sheer scale of it, the sheer, the sort of ambition of it, um, uh, people didn't believe it. I think I think uh, you're I think you're absolutely right, and I couldn't rationalise it. You know, you're, you're you're absolutely right, and and I think that people didn't really appreciate the scale of the Holocaust until the Eichmann trial in the early sixties. Um, and I think you've also got to remember that even. People hadn't identified the Holocaust in the camps as simply being what it was, which was genocide against a specific yeah. group of people. And even Dimbleby's um, now famous broadcasts about Belson uh, when, when it was liberated, the BBC cut all mention of the fact that Jews were there um, yes. because they didn't want to help promote this idea that the Jews should have a homeland. And, and they also were also rightly trying not to promote the idea that the Jewish population of Germany wasn't German. Because, of course, yeah. you know, they are German. Yeah, the yeah, Germans yeah. are murdering their own people. But, of course, yeah. so, th th so as a result, th you, when I spoke to Lord Janner, the late Lord Janner, Greville Janner, of course, was Jewish and was on the British war crimes team. Um, and he was on it until 1949. And, and he expressed dismay that it was wound up, you know, in his views very, very quickly. Um, because uh, as someone who is Jewish, he identified quite early on that this was genocidal in a yeah. far greater way than your average Brit. Um, and also your average Brit may not have cared so much, perhaps. I don't know. Yeah. But the point was, is that the idea that you have this idea of chasing Nazis because of the Holocaust simply isn't in the public imagination until probably the Eichmann trial and beyond. And that's where so that's someone what, like 62, Simon 61? 
60. Uh, he's kidnapped in 1960 and he's eventually uh, executed in 62. May and, and 62. So, it, so the people making the running then in getting this idea of, the, the, of war criminality and that there are Nazis that need, need hunting, down, hunting down, really, is the, is the Israeli government. It's Mossad. and it, it, it's, Yeah, but even it's... then, only in a very minor way, because, of course, by the 50s and 60s, the Israeli government had its own enemies on its doorstep it needed to fight, and it had yes. fairly limited resources. So are you going to assert, yes. hunt for your historical, well, relatively historical enemy, or are you going to deal with the, your present-day enemy on your doorstep? So yeah, they, had yeah. very, they had very few resources to go around hunting Nazis. Um, so ultimately, hunting Nazis became a private enterprise. Um, right. And, and it it was, and, and this it was is Wiesenthal, isn't it? This is Wiesenthal, and it's Amateur Hour. And there are also other characters in my book, like Tuvaya Friedman, uh, and they all hate each other because they're all very jealous. I mean, they're sort of like, you know, historians quibbling over, you're writing on my pants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're in competition. They're in competition, they? exactly. And so when Eichmann is eventually tracked down and kidnapped uh, by the Israelis in 1960, um, because Mossad aren't publicly admitting it, everyone knows, but uh, what, what you have is these characters like Simon Wiesenthal and like Tavia Friedman all coming out of the woodwork saying, I did it. I was the one who found him. I was the one who did it uh, 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 because they're filling an information vacuum with their own supposed exploits. Yeah. Uh, and, and Wiesenthal was once called by an Israeli ambassador. Yes, uh, he, he may have been a Nazi hunter, but he was never a Nazi finder. Um, you know, Simon Wiesenthal never went to Latin America, which, as you know, was the favoured retirement destination yeah. for your Nazi. But what well, um, about the Middle East? Go back a bit on Simon Wiesenthal, because, um, I mean, he is the most famous Nazi hunter of all. You know, there are streets in every German city called Wiesenthalstrasse. Um, you know, he, he, he he's he's been put on this huge pedestal. And, and what I thought was just stunning about your book was the absolute obliteration of his reputation from the very start to finish. I mean, uh, and I remember having conversations with you about all sorts of things about him. I mean, you know, you, I mean, you basically came to the conclusion that he had sort of Munchausen syndrome and that he was a total fantasist, didn't he? I, I think he, he almost was a complete fantasist. And the problem is, is that when you're writing about a figure like that, who's um, obviously uh, 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 revered and, and also the fact that he's Jewish and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, a sort of, white posh non-jewish historian and 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 you start writing well, welcome aboard yeah, yeah, hello, yeah. <laughs> i remember doing quickly i remember doing a radio four program about the appeal of the third reich as a topic and uh and and the and the and the producer said oh, can i find any men who aren't in their 40s to talk to anyway but that's, <laughs> sorry about that anyway but he 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 anyway but the, the point was I, me I remember saying to my wife I, I found out i'm looking at all the records about wiesenthal and i've worked out he claimed to have you know tracked down 1100 uh, Nazis, you know, the true figure, you know, is probably below 10. I mean, that's a lot more than, than, than many people did, clearly. But um, what he's doing there, it, 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 he was a, a self-publicist extraordinaire. Uh, yes, he was employed by Mossad in a way that, you know, any intelligence service um, employs tons of people as sources. Mm. Um, you know, they probably didn't even have him on a retainer. Um, and he never went to Latin America. Listen, you could have gone to Buenos Aires in 1954 say and you could have gone to the abc cafe in downtown buenos aires it still exists um and there you would have seen adolf eichmann and joseph mengler having a beer talking about the old times. talking about the old times now they weren't great friends but there were tons of nazis there and they would sit down and they would chat away these yeah. until never bothered and one other thing if you wanted to find joseph mengler in the 1950s well, go to the buenos aires phone book and there you will see the name mengler first name jose mengler so <laughs> That is the level of disguise we're looking at. We're changing Jose after Jose. We need to take a short break now. I'll see you in a tick.
I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Am I right in thinking that Joseph Mengele um, uh, applied for a passport in his own name? Yes, a German passport and he got it. In his own name, and he got it—a yeah. West German passport yeah. as Joseph Mengele. Now, that obviously there are—I don't know how many people there were ever called Joseph Mengele. So maybe there's, let's say, there's a hundred in the German. I doubt, I doubt it's records. that many. I but doubt it. And also, passports weren't as common, you know, because, again, you can't, one of the anachronisms is we've all got passports now because we all do regular foreign, well, not at the moment, we all do regular foreign travel normally. So, so the, the, having a passport is unusual. And he applied for a West German passport in his own name yeah, and, and got it. And from, and he applied for it in Buenos Aires. <laughs> so, but also, <laughs> but also... <laughs> I mean, the Mengele oh family, oh, they're, they're quite a big name Jesus. in agricultural machinery, aren't they? Is that right? Mengele, the, the, name <coughs> Mengele, the name Mengele in Bavaria... It's quite rare, isn't it? It, 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 it's, it's, it has the same resonances as John Deere or Massey Ferguson does here. It's, it, Mengele family are incredibly wealthy uh, producers of tractors and agricultural machinery. Um, I think they sold out recently. But the fact is, the reason why Mengele was able to get away with it for so long is because his family were incredibly well-heeled. Um, and he... He was able to, um, you know, sort of, you know, he got, he got money. Pay, pe- uh, pay people uh, off. Exactly. And he was able to yeah. stay with people in Paraguay and Brazil. And, and he was a pretty unpleasant uh, you know, person to have in your house because he was incredibly frustrated. He was a very intelligent man. And he, and he hated living in kind of backwaters of Paraguay. I and mean, I've been to where he used to live in Paraguay. I mean, you know, it's, I've never felt so far from home, even though it's landlocked. Paraguay is an island, effectively. And, it, and it's full of very, very... Um, 
pretty pretty basic people and that sounds wrong it was there was a lot of german emigration there in about 1900 and it was a very poor agricultural class moved out and when you go there there are a lot of very rotund bald german men walking around who um you know and you speak in german in the middle of paraguay um and that was pre nazi emigration and and mengele was a very refined well to do wealthy bourgeois you know double doctorate hanging out with basically you know some rural types, if I'm, I don't want to sound too snobby, but let's face it, that was the problem. Right. And and you also did your own Nazi hunting, didn't you, Walt? Because you went to, you, you, you found out, you, you went through the list that was on yeah, uh, Wiesenthal's well, showed, top 10. It struck me that if you're going to write a book about Nazi hunting, why not give it a crack? Um, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> how, how, how hard, hard can, it, can, be? It, can it be? And uh, it's a bit of a catchphrase for me and Jim. How hard can it be? Uh, and uh, and uh, anyway, so I went through the Summer of Eastenthal list of most wanted Nazi war criminals, and one was called Erna Wallisch, who had been a uh, female SS guard in in various concentration camps, and had had liked to take took great pleasure in beating people and and doing all the other revolting things that they like doing and, and of course it said she lived in vienna so i went on to the uh the internet and looked at the uh, vienna white pages telephone book and up her name came in schiffmuhlenstrasse vienna so i literally got the ba flight out the following morning to vienna and with a local stringer uh uh, english-speaking stringer uh, went and knocked on her door armed with a great big fat nikon and uh, and she answered the door in in her dressing gown are you erna volish yes what do you want um you know <laughs> why are you in prison just <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> here we go and you know and, and and but what's extraordinary is she, and so so you know she she is living there i mean she she died a few years back um but she was as guilty as sin of course you know we spoke to the austrian home office about why you know, no attempts were being made to bring her to justice and and i guess the, the the big question is you know should we still be bringing an accountant from auschwitz to trial even today as we recently have you know this bookkeeper guy you know is he complicit in murder yes of course he is you know can you say that during the time he was there say a million people died is he partially responsible for the deaths of those million people um i there are two schools of thought by perfectly reasonable people to say you've got to leave a man like that alone he's not really pulling triggers and the other school of thought is saying actually he's part of the machinery that helps the trigger pullers because you could say no you could say no you didn't have to be the train driver there there is a fascinating paper that i will email you both one day in which it goes through every trial of ss men who refused to carry out murderous acts and guess how many of them were executed for refusing orders it's none isn't it? it's none correct Yes, because I mean, this is I mean, this is the this is the, you know, uh, Browning's ordinary men and then um, the, uh, you know, Hitler's willing executioners. Um, uh, what, 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 who, what's the name of that? Goldhagen. Oh, Daniel Jonah Goldhagen. And, and he does that. He does basically one of those sort of he, he's got a little graph of, you know, um, uh, uh, only obeying orders. How many people were convicted for it? How many people got in trouble? You could because he looks at those police battalions where they simply said, I, "I don't fancy this." I'm afraid they'd be sent back to Berlin to be policemen. Yes, and they wouldn't even be sent to the you know in in, in the tradition of commando comics and war films. You're off to the Russian front if you don't no, obey the orders. Back to your old back to your old job. Never bloody Sorry. happened. Never bloody. Fair happened. enough. You're not cut out for it. Go yeah. back to your old job. Yeah. And that's the that's the sort of that's the thing I think that um is is often really hard to get your head around. I mean, uh, well, it's hard to get. I mean, the truth is, it's hard to get your head around all of this. Because that a society ends up doing this stuff, um, and people quite willingly joining in is is the sort of 
yeah, it's the grand, it, it's think, the grand think, imponderable. And so do you do you arrest basically everyone? I mean, this is what it comes down to. There's 100,000 people in that UN document. Do you arrest everyone in a position of authority in Germany? And then you've got an unmanageable country or do you try and denazify them and you, 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 you know, you basically put the high command on trial at Nuremberg and... Exactly. You, know you, you, you do your best. And, you know, and, and, you know, after the Great Escape in which you had, you know, uh, uh, loads and loads of Gestapo men uh, wanted for it. And, and some of them were, were, were tracked down and, and, they, and, and, and some of them were hanged. But there, there was, uh, you know, again, there, there were letters moaning about about these Gestapo men being hanged in the British press saying that they were they were just doing their duty. And there was a sort of sense that, I mean, following orders is not a defence in law if you, if you carry out an act you know to be illegal. And that was shown after the First World War when there was that famous case of the German submarine that had, that had mowed down, I can't remember what it was called now, but it mowed down various people in the water in sort of 1917, 1918. And, and it was after the First World War in which this idea that following orders as a defence was, was simply dismissed and scotched in international law. And everybody knew that. Everybody knew that. And it was simply not a, an acceptable defence. But I think that people still feel enormous amount of sympathy for perpetrators because they know that they may not necessarily have had the moral courage not to have done the same thing themselves uh, and it's very easy to say well you've met you've met a a, a really bad guy in, in eric priebker uh, and you actually shared a bottle of wine with him didn't you in his room ro- so uh, eric priebker for those who don't know he was involved in the argentina massacre um so what happened was some italian partisans shot some ss police battalion i think they shot 33 um in march 1944 and hitler went absolutely apeshit and said right i want 50 people killed for every single person and they ended up making it 10 um was the kind of and they thought well we'll just get people oh, that's, your com- happy comp- that's your compromise yeah, happy yeah, compromise yeah. <laughs> yeah so that and that became the the standard rule for the rest of the italian campaign and they then um, they then sort of you know went through the prisons and found there wasn't even remotely enough people. So then they just started sort of round, rounding up sort of you know willy nilly Jews, kind of anyone they could get their hands on. And it ended up being there were five extra. There were three hundred and thirty five who'd somehow been taken out in these trucks, and they were taken to the Ardiatina caves, which are just south of Rome. Uh, and they were executed there, five at a time, you know, shot in the back of the head. Uh, and it's, it's so grotesque, it's not true. And one of the people that was involved in this action and was doing the shooting was Eric Priebke, who, after the war, escaped to South America, I think, didn't he? Uh, and was then brought back, put on trial and imprisoned. But after, I think, the age of 75 or something in, in Italy, you can't be imprisoned. You ha- you, you're in house arrest. So Walt goes over to Rome, um, gets in touch with him, and he says, yeah, come round to my flat and let's have some vine and, and talk about the old days. And you were really talking about, about his escape, weren't you? Which was the interesting bit. But, but, I did. But it was... It's chilling to kind of sit there opposite someone who's responsible for this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the idea there's you know, a, a captain in the Gestapo and you've got his email address. It, it seems really strange because you think of these people as historical figures, but they, you know, they're, they're around still just about. Uh, I mean, he, he I won't go into all the details about his escape and so on. But I mean, he what, what he he was under permanent house arrest in his flat in Rome. So I turned up there at 10 o'clock and at the bottom of the block of flats. Uh, there was an Italian policeman. I had to surrender my passport. Um, and then I went up to his flat. And it was 10 o'clock in the morning. And he said, let's open a bottle of wine. And you think you have that sort of kind of slight moral qualm. Am I really going to share a bottle of wine? My problem wasn't how early in the morning it was for a bottle of wine. My problem is, am I, <laughs> am I, am I going to share a bottle of wine with a Gestapo murderer? And you think, well, you know, journalism must prevail. Historical inquiry must prevail. I need to get, you know, I want to be on the right side of this guy. Um, 
Priebke was a perfectly charming, on one level, perfectly decent man. And of course, in their heads, people like that are. You know, he had been a hotelier, a linguist. He had worked at the Savoy before the war. And so in 1936, he remembers living in Britain in 1936, the abdication crisis. He spoke faultless languages. Um, uh, a, a very bright, very amiable, perfectly nice chap. Uh, you know, the perfect figure of a, of a, of a nice grandpa, if you like. Um, and yet he had committed, the, you know, the atrocity that uh, taken part in the atrocity that, that Jim has just described. And if you look at the files, what's really chilling about the Arditine massacre is how one of the young Gestapo officers doesn't want to commit the murders. And the senior um, the Gestapo man, was that Kapler, Jim? It might have been Kapler, goes along and says, I put my arm round his shoulder and spoke to him in a, in a fatherly way to encourage him to, to, to get on with it. And it's this idea that you take someone like the same age as your son to then shoot a, a, a 16 year old who's been dragged out of prison because he has once stolen a bottle of milk, which is what the level of criminality some of these victims were, i.e. none. Uh, and you talk to your comrade in a fatherly way and you get him to shoot. Well, together we went in and shot a couple in there together. And then and then we all felt so much better. Right. And so but and then, of course, what people like that do is there's a American academic called Robert J. Lifton, who says there's a process called doubling. So psychologically, you just shut that off um, and you say that happened to a different person. And then after the war. It just goes into a different place in your brain and you never access it again. And so for someone like Priebke, he just felt that's what we did. I did it. The British used to do it in India and Africa. Too bad. And, yeah, 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 yeah. and, and, and I'm not guilty. And of course, other members of the Arditines massacre, some of them uh, uh, were put on trial. They weren't executed. They did prison sentences and they lived as free men for the rest of their lives. Someone like Priebke spent a lot of his time on the run. Actually, what he could have done was handed himself in in 1949 and he would have been absolutely fine. Gosh. I mean, because this, this, this is one of the things that... I, uh, you know, uh, are these SS men fleeing because they think they know they've done something wrong and they and they and you, you know what I mean? Yeah. They're aware of their criminality. Yes. Or are they fleeing because they think, well, we've lost the war and we're going to be on the receiving end of victor's just justice, which of which, of course, which, of course, is how you can also look at what yes. the Allies decide And I think that's exactly both, right. Isn't it? It's, it's both. It's both. I mean, Priebke well, it called... Well, has to be both. Yeah. It has Pre to be both. Priebke called be... his memoir Ve Victus, The Way of the Victors, and, and, and he, he felt that he was on the receiving end of rough victor's justice, but also, of course, he was aware of the fact that if you shoot a 16-year-old boy in the back of the head for stealing milk, uh, you know, he's been, then, then, then you're guilty of something. I mean, they, they, had a moral, yeah. they had a moral compass. And, you know, SS officers were, were broadly drawn from a... a, a, a you know, a, a pretty bourgeois background. It's not yes. like your average sort of kind of um, Ukrainian peasant who's dragooned into a Ukrainian battalion that ends up... Well, who they, uh, yes, who they relied on to do this to stuff do some for really them. nasty yeah. work. Who, yeah. uh, even then, it's probably grotesque of me to say that even someone like that wouldn't have a moral compass. But you may, you may take my point. That, and, and, I, and so I think, yes, they, they were escaping because they felt... That, and also some of them had actually evacuated some money to Latin America because you've got to remember that in Latin America you had a vast German population from about 1900 onwards. So, you know, there was a very solid, uh, what was called an Auslands organisation, a foreign organisation of the Nazi party throughout the 20s, throughout the 30s. So, you know, you, you've got friends there and you might as well go and live there. And if you've ever been to Patagonia uh, and towns like Bariloche, where they all ended up, you know, it feels very German and Austrian. Yes. And, and you know, when, it's a home from home. 
When I was a youngster, we lived in Venezuela very for three months, very brief. Not because we were fleeing um, uh, <laughs> Victor's justice, but um, and and I remember we got taken up to a like a a Ger- you know it was a German village you could go and visit, which was all Bratwurst and Lederhosen. It was quite extraordinary. Like a little Bavarian village, but in the Venezuelan jungle, completely bonkers. It, 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 it is a, uh, it's just extraordinary when you when you go to these places, and you're right, and it, and it is, and you know, Eric Priebke had a German delicatessen in Bariloche, you know, so that's what he did, you know, SS captain to deli owner, um, and and he probably served a mean bratwurst, and he was also head of the local uh, Argentine German community, um, and so whenever the new German ambassador would go to Argentina, he would pop down to Bariloche to see some of his, you know, uh, fellow Germans, and and. And the man at the airport waiting to greet him would be the head of the German Argentine community, one Eric Priebke, former SS captain and, 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 and murderer. I suppose the war is if you're if you're a German uh, community person in South Africa, in South America, the war's a long way away, isn't it? So when these guys turn up and go, I've got to get away because the because the British are going to arrest me. You don't know. You probably don't know what's been going on in Europe anyway yeah, in, in the in the specific so so of course the the guy turns up and you go well we'll look after you don't worry yeah about they it. did and also you've got, you've got to remember Argentina was an incredibly rich country it was the, it was the yeah. th- it, I mean in the early part of the 20th century it was the fourth largest economy in the world so it yeah. was as rich as Britain is today and also the reason why we weren't really worrying about them sheltering Nazis is because we had these old Lancaster bombers we we're trying to get rid of so we sold the Argentine Air Force shed loads of lanks um, and, and you know so yeah probably you know just two careful owners, you know, whatever, you know, on easy terms. And if, oh. if, if the Argentinians were going to buy our old Lancaster bombers, great. You know, you're not going to start, you know, telling Peron that he's looking after nasty Germans because, you know, let's face it, the Yanks and the Brits, we, 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 were, we were playing host to a few Nazi, ge- nasty Germans ourselves in order to get, yes. you know, rockets to the moon ultimately. So yeah, 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 there yeah, is yeah. a hypocrisy. Yeah. Just just quick one, Walt, before, before we finish. Um, uh, Odessa, it's, it's the old chestnut, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Just it, there wasn't really an Odessa, was there? Yeah, I mean, I love the Odessa Fathers, a film and a book. And, and, and I did interview Frederick Forsyth about Odessa. Um, the reason why Odessa is bollocks is because in German it stands for the Organisation of Former SS Men. Now, if you are forming a league of secret Nazis on the run from the SS, <laughs> are you going to... <laughs> I rest my case. You do not call yourself... No. Do you know what it was? It was fake news put about by Stalin. It's straight out the Russian troll. Yes, which is, and he's responsible for all the Hitler sightings as well. Exactly. So Odessa did not exist. They then uh, became people in France in the 70s who liked to call themselves Odessa um, because they were being influenced by fiction. When I spoke to Frederick Forsyth about it, it, it had come about largely because it was a kind of Sunday Times story by a man called Anthony Terry, um, who is fictionalized as Cadbury in the book. Um, Freddie had just used yeah, the name of a fellow chocolate maker. Yeah, yeah, clever, yeah, yeah it is a clever man. And um, but actually, and the Odessa story was actually largely cooked up by our old friend Simon Wiesenthal, who was you know helping to sort of create these sort of monstrous um, you know fake organisations that would give him something to hunt. And in fact, you even go back to a man called Wilhelm Hertel who had worked with Eichmann, and he had gone. He had oh yes. Yeah. Former SD agent who was going around. And he was heavily. at Altaze, wasn't he? With yeah, he was an Al- and, he, he was um, an Altaze, and he was the man who knew where all the Nazi gold was. He knew where it was. Um, I went and interviewed his daughter, but he he would peddle any sort of crap you might imagine to credible Allied intelligence agencies about Nazis, about Nazi gold, about Odessa. You name it, he made up a total crock 
of bullshit and you get these young intelligence officers from Hemel Hempstead or Idaho buying into it completely. Well, Wilhelm Hertel was a 40-year-old SD, a tremendously experienced intelligence agent, and and he led these people on a merry dance. And and it's from Hertel, Wiesenthal, Frederick Forsyth. And he made a a living doing that. Hertel did, yeah, of course he did. So that was just how he paid the bills. His daughter lives in a nice house. God, amazing, amazing. amazing. Well, listen, everyone should read this book. It's absolutely fantastic. It's totally compelling and gripping from start to finish. It's just, I mean, we have absolutely scraped the tip of the iceberg here. There's so much stuff. And, and you know, the the thing you're left with at the end of this book is just what an absolute shit show the whole thing was. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. There's so many incredible uh, characters and stories in it, but it is fascinating stuff. Fantastic. Thanks very much, Guy. Cheers, gents. Thank you for having me. Auf Wiedersehen. 